Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. As everyone knows by now, Pope Benedict resigned his papacy, apparently due to his failing health, but it is said to be the first such resignation in over 600 years. That means the last time a pope resigned and did not die on the job was sometime in the 15th century. This was the century that saw the beginning of the Renaissance period. Leonardo da Vinci invented the parachute, among other things. The Forbidden City was completed in Beijing, which became the capital of China. Constantinople fell to the advancing Ottoman Empire. The papacy was split into an eastern and a western half. St. Andrew's University was started in Scotland, and Eton was founded by King Henry VIII. Christopher Columbus, of course, landed in the Bahamas, and many significant battles were fought and won, which had lasting impacts on Europe and the rest of the world, etc., etc. Frankly, I was amazed when I looked it up to see all the things that happened during the 1400s. Our modern world would have been very different if things had happened differently back then in the 15th century. As a result of the Pope's resignation, though, I had the opportunity to watch a Catholic priest on a television show discuss his impressions and what the resignation probably means. On quite a different slant, however, the priest told the host of the show that he must insist on telling first what he called the funniest thing that had ever happened to him on the day before this particular interview took place. He promised to discuss the resignation, but after he told his story. He also corrected the interviewer from the television station when the host called the Pope the Holy One in his introduction to the segment. God is the Holy One, corrected this popular young priest. The Pope is his heavenly representative. I have seen this priest a number of times as a contributor on religious matters to the TV station, and quite right he was to do it too. The story, though, that he wanted to tell had apparently taken place the day before when he was waiting for a red-eye flight back to New York. He had boarded the flight when he heard some commotion. He looked up and discovered that a waiter that he had seen from the cafe in the terminal holding a vase of red flowers or red roses and was making a noise with the stewardess. He was loudly insisting that she allow him on the flight because the lady that had left the flowers that he held in his hands, she had left them in the cafe, and he was trying to return them to her. The stewardess relented and permitted the waiter on the plane, whereupon he proceeded down the aisle directly to the lady that he recognized was the one who had forgotten her arrangement of flowers on a table in his restaurant. As he approached the woman and held out the flowers, the passengers erupted in a burst of clapping and whistles and shouts of congratulations. Obviously, they were mistaking assuming that the waiter was now proposing to the woman in a very public manner. This is a good example of how good intentions can be misunderstood without the right information. 
Good intentions, misunderstood or not, that waiter went beyond the call of duty. I'm sure the customer appreciated his efforts and was glad to have her flowers back in spite of the public embarrassment. The priest was obviously enamoured with the story of the Good Samaritan and the misunderstanding of the passengers, with good reason. It must have been a memorable occasion for all, especially for the waiter and that flower lady. But back to the Pope. The priest gave an interesting review of some of the reasons why he thought Benedict was leaving, particularly the historic process through which the cardinals would now have to select his replacement. The white smoke has been seen, of course, and we now know who the new Pope is and some of his background. While he is the first Pope from the Americas, the new Pope does have a European connection since his father was Italian. It will be interesting to see how things evolve in the months ahead. There are some who have intimated that they believe that he may be the very last Pope before Christ returns for the Church. What a prospect indeed. And it fits right in with other Bible scholars who also see these as probably the last days preceding the Lord's return. How exciting is that?
And now with this message for today, here's our pastor, Alan Lee. Good morning and greetings once again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are continuing with our series of messages of which this is the seventh on the topic, The Human Difference, Its Impact Upon the Christians Dealing with the Moral Dilemmas of Our Day. As I've stated before, my proposition for this series is that most, if not all, of the social and moral issues that challenge us today are basically asking one underlining question, and that question is, what is man, or is there a human difference? We are seeking to demonstrate the truth that the Christian or theistic worldview provides a better basis and philosophy for living than other competing worldviews. And that is because of the awesome fact that we as human beings are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. It is my conviction that the understanding and living out of the inherent implications of this divine reality impacts our response as Christians to such moral dilemmas as abortion, stem cell research, euthanasia, ecology, animal rights, capital punishment, and same-sex marriage as well. As I mentioned last time, because of the current interest in same-sex marriage at this time, we gave two or three messages on that issue. We concluded last time by pointing out that scriptures show that human sexuality, as originally designed by God, inherently concerns the polarity of the sexes that reflect the Imago Dei when united as husband and wife, and that this is still God's design and tension today as well, and that is regardless of what science is purported to have shown or has contributed to our way of life. No scientific progress can change what God has permanently established as the bedrock of humanity made in his image. And biblically and theologically speaking, because of the fact that mankind, as created as male and female, who was created in the image of God, same-sex marriage, therefore, is a distortion of that image because it is contrary to what God is like in his essential nature. That was our conclusion in our address concerning same-sex marriage. But now today, using the same proposition regarding the impact and significance of the fact that man is made in the image of God, I want to show that that is also why capital punishment is not only allowed in Scripture, but is in fact essentially demanded. As a result, from a biblical and Judeo-Christian heritage perspective, it would be a travesty to abolish it from our judicial system in the Bahamas in order to supposedly bring us into conformity with other so-called progressive nations of the world, which do not share the same heritage as we do in these Bahama Islands. Biblically speaking, the concept of capital punishment, now not the process by which it is carried out, mind you, but the concept itself, is embedded within biblical revelation from Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the Old Testament, we find many cases in which God directly and personally commands the use of capital punishment. God was involved, either directly or indirectly, in the taking of life as a punishment for the nation of Israel or for those who threatened or harmed Israel, his representatives on earth. 
and it was always a demonstration of his attributes of love, justice, and holiness. Now, please follow me carefully, because capital punishment is never discussed on the level or from the perspective we will be doing here. The principle of capital punishment was instituted long before Israel was established as a nation. One example is the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. God destroyed all human and animal life except that which is on the ark. Another example is Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19, where God destroyed the two cities because of the heinous sin of the inhabitants. In the time of Moses, God took the lives of the Egyptians' firstborn sons and destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. These were all punishments such as the punishment of Kadesh Barnea or the rebellion of Korah. All of these were against the Jews as they were wandering in the wilderness. God executed what could be termed capital punishment. The Old Testament is replete, I say, with references and examples of God taking human life. In a sense, God used capital punishment to deal with Israel's sins and the sins of the nation surrounding Israel. The Old Testament also teaches that God instituted capital punishment in the Jewish law code. In fact, the principle of capital punishment even precedes the Old Testament and its law code. According to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, capital punishment is based upon a belief and in fact in the sanctity of life. This is what the text says, Genesis 9, 6. Listen carefully. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made him. That, my friend, is the word of the triune God. And so it is erroneous to think that capital punishment is based solely on the law of Moses, specifically the command which states, Thou shalt not murder, which, by the way, is the proper translation, rather than thou shalt not kill. Capital punishment, I say, is based on Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 9, and the revealed fact that mankind is made in the image and likeness of God, which makes human life sacred. In other words, capital punishment is based on the sanctity of human life because man is made in the image of God. It is not therefore just a legal matter. It is first and foremost a spiritual matter, one having to do with the very nature and essence of God himself. Now, the Mosaic law set forth numerous offenses that were punishable by death. The first was murder. In Exodus chapter 21, God commanded capital punishment for murderers, premeditated murder, or what the Old Testament described as lying in wait, was punishable by death. A second offense punishable by death was involvement in the occult. This included sorcery, divination, acting as a medium, and also sacrificing to false god. Third, capital punishment was to be used against perpetrators of sexual sins such as rape, incest, or homosexual practice. Now, within the Old Testament theocracy, capital punishment was extended beyond murder to cover various offenses, as I've said, but all of them are related to the Ten Commandments. 
Now, while the death penalty for these offenses was limited to this particular dispensation or revelation, notice that the principle in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 is not tied to the theocracy or tied to the law of Moses. Instead, the principle of what is called lex talionis, which means a life for a life, is tied to the creation order, not to the law of Moses. Capital punishment is warranted due to the sanctity of life, not because it breaks the Mosaic covenant. Even before we turn to the New Testament, we find this universally binding principle that precedes the Old Testament law code. And so we may safely conclude, from a biblical perspective, that God gave the principle of capital punishment before the institution of the Old Testament law that we call the Mosaic law. Listen again, please, to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The principle is clear, my friends. God instituted capital punishment because humans are created in the image of God. Its purpose, then, is first and foremost the preservation of the godness of God as reflected in man being made in his image. In other words, to unlawfully take such a life made in the image of God without the authorization of God who created that life is to subject oneself to the taking of his or her own life by the agency authorized by God to do so, which, as validated by Genesis 9, and as we shall see in Romans 13, is the state or government as opposed to individuals per se. In other words, the authority to take the life of a murderer is given to the established government as such, not to an individual. I repeat then, the principle of capital punishment is not rooted in the Old Testament law, but rather in the creation order itself. It is a much broader biblical principle that carries into the New Testament as well. Now, some maintain that capital punishment does not apply to the New Testament and church age. They argue that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to be arguing against capital punishment. He talks about, of course, turning the cheek and forgiving and so on. But is Jesus really doing such a thing as claimed by some? Let's consider the Sermon on the Mount. It must be remembered that Jesus is not addressing the world in general. He's not addressing the believer and unbeliever. He is addressing believers only. He is addressing his true disciples, and he's laying down the standards that differentiate them from those who are not his disciples. Jesus clearly states that the standards of those who follow him must be much more superior to those who do not. Second, Jesus is not arguing against the principle of a life for a life in general in the Sermon on the Mount, but rather he's speaking to the issue of his disciples' personal desire for vengeance. He is not denying the power and responsibility of the government. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to individual believers. It is an interpretive and hermeneutical error to apply it to everyone in general and for all times. Our Lord is actually telling Christians that they should not try to replace or usurp the power of the government. 
Mind you, he does not deny the power and authority of a government, but rather he calls upon individual Christians to love their enemies and to forgive those who do them or their family harm, even if it involves murder. This is the turn the other cheek principle. But please, and this is important, it is personal and individual. It is not judicial or governmental. That's a very important distinction to keep in mind. Now again, some maintain that Jesus set aside capital punishment in John 8 when he did not call for the woman caught in adultery to be stoned. But such an interpretation does violence to the context of the passage. Think carefully, my friends. The Pharisees, we are told, were trying to trap Jesus between the Roman law and the Mosaic law. If Jesus said that they should stone this woman, he would break the Roman law. If he refused to allow them to stone her, he would break the Mosaic law. Jesus' answer avoids this conflict. He said that he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Notice, by inviting the crowd to throw a stone, Jesus not only recognizes the validity and legality of capital punishment, but he clearly does not abolish it. He simply insists that it be done legally. Jesus, my friends of all people, recognized a setup when he saw one. And even if it were conceded or concluded that Jesus abolished capital punishment for this woman, all that can legitimately be concluded from this was that he abolished capital punishment for adultery, not for murder. The woman was not charged with murder. She was charged with adultery. This, again, is where it comes to accurately handling the Word of God. But unfortunately, our time is gone for today. We'll have to complete this message next time, Lord willing. Until then, this is Pastor Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. Therefore evermore to stay.
us the great commander's promise. He will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be happen in a moment. Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again